Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Cassia and I spoke with Patrick Kingsley, the author and New York Times correspondent. It's a great episode, despite the fact that I sound a little bit crazed at the beginning because I was 45 minutes late for, for our interview. Nevertheless, he handled it like a champ and he spoke about his uh, career initially at The Guardian as, as a feature writer for G2, uh, moving on to be the Egypt correspondent for a couple of years and finally uh, his time there as a, a migration um, correspondent. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, we're here with Patrick Kingsley, the author and foreign correspondent for the New York Times based in London. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us um, and for, uh, yeah, to having sharing your time. And I'm sorry, I'm a bit flustered because I was sort of horrendously uh, late. But we'd like to start, as we always do, with your initial interest in writing and your entry into journalism. Gosh, well, two separate things, I think. Um... I think my entrance to journalism is a bit easier. I edited this student paper at University, Cambridge. Um, and basically because I was working with people much more talented than I was, uh, a lot of us won awards at the Guardian Student Media Awards, which mm. is an annual award scheme for people involved in student journalism. And as I say, basically because they were really good. I mean, we had like Reporter of the Year, Sports Writer of the Year, Feature Writer of the Year, I think, a bunch of those kinds of awards. Um, I got an award as their editor um, and that got me an internship at The Guardian which I did in my third year of Cambridge and so I was doing sort of time on the news desk, time on the features desk um, and I think because I basically didn't really make any mistakes, like I wasn't that bad, they asked me if I wanted to come back and sort of shift which I did on the news desk during the election campaign uh, in 2010. And then I came back again in the summer, um, sort of in a more permanent capacity mm. for the features to SG2, and I became a feature writer. Uh, and that was, like, amazing, because I grew up reading The Guardian and reading people like Stephen Moss and Hadley Freeman and mm. Kira Cochran, and suddenly I was literally sitting on their desk um, next to them and appearing in the same pages as they were. So, so it sounds like you were always interested in journalism, if, you, if this was stuff that you'd grown up reading... And if you went on to, to edit the student um, newspaper, was this something that you were just very passionate about? You don't generally yeah, become well, editor by accident. Uh, I think when... I remember when I was about six or seven, I remember I was asking my mum all the time what the difference between all the newspapers were. And uh, one day she just bought all the newspapers, or five or six, and we made a spreadsheet, a uh, hand-drawn spreadsheet, and I think we had to work out what I had to work out, what the difference between all the newspapers were, you know, right wing, left wing, tabloid, broadsheet. So yeah, even even in, mm. as a child, I was fascinated by journalism. Um, and I, did, I never quite imagined I would necessarily end up in journalism just because it seemed so far away. Um, and in fact, I had a job uh, as a teacher that I was supposed to do had I not been mm. offered that chance on G2 at The Guardian. Um, I was supposed to be teaching in a comprehensive in Liverpool. Um, but in the end, I didn't go there because I suddenly had this amazing chance to, to try and make it at The Guardian, so I took that. And uh, maybe I'll go back to teaching at some point. Who knows? Something <laughs> I think to myself on a and, and rainy with, day. With a kind of 10 years, 10 years perspective, what's your view on student journalism now? I mean, it's something I did a lot of as well. What, what's your view looking back on that whole... Um, that whole well, it's funny because at the time you think you're the, you're the biggest deal in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, you're the, you're the editor of the student paper at university. 
and uh, everyone's reading every week and you think it's like brilliant like, and then now you look back and like ab- abject embarrassment and you're like how can I write that how did we have that idea is it but all digitised um, thankfully not I've got a, a compendium a, a printed version of like all the papers are printed as a book uh, which hopefully no one will get their hands on um, <laughs> but I think it's great it's great training though you, know, you have to, mm. having to put out a weekly paper and um, it's real in a way that sometimes the sort of internship experience cannot be right yeah well. I mean you're making editorial decisions sometimes you're getting sued for libel as in a couple of cases Varsity was um, and also I mean I, I wish like at that time, I'd had a greater understanding of where journalism was going in the outside world, because mm. that was the time when the digital revolution was in full swing, and, and it actually would have been far more useful, um, you know, around 2008, to be just doing a student website rather than a student paper, because it turns out, actually, papers are, are fast going out of business. So, I mean, I'm sort of amazed that we, we were so oblivious to what would have been really useful. But uh, obviously, that... that Discipline of finding mm. stories, quickly reporting stories, um, uh, has, uh, and then having to produce a, a, a paper once a week um, for a whole a whole term or a whole year is a great discipline. Obviously, we're going to talk more about your um, career since then. But was did you enjoy the editing um, process? Because you have you, you've done obviously predominantly writing since then. But did you really enjoy um, that love- experience of kind of shaping? Um, the, the paper I loved it I loved editing uh, in fact I didn't really think of myself as a writer uh, at that time you know I, I loved coming up with like the centre spread or just deciding what was going to be in like the magazine section of the paper that was the I think that was the best bit I remember like being in the office at four in the morning you know just making sure all the hairline um, dividers between the you know the right hand column and the main feature on that page was the was the right weighting you know was it 1.1.5 points or 0.5 points I was I was I was really specific about that so I loved I loved all the design loved all the printing I loved all the editing um and in fact I didn't even write that much at, at university so I think I basically I was first and foremost interested in journalism and I became more interested in writing almost by chance perhaps what was that initial experience at the Guardian like doing that that kind of G two stuff? I mean, we had we had a look at some of the clips, and it seemed you were covering a, you know, a huge range of stuff within there. From Paul the psychic octopus to TP tents and and all the rest of and it. And this great piece you sent on about um, the the Gapia Trail in Thailand. But but what being there straight out of university, what was what was that experience like? I mean, it was it was it's a cliche, but it was a dream come true. I'd, I'd, had grown up reading this section which as you, as you were hinting at had this amazingly wide varied range of, of subjects and articles and tones and suddenly I was right in the middle of it um, and some of the stuff you do is quite is, is quite silly and, it, and it's basically about yourself you know they they would send me out to do stupid things like one time I had to wear some meggings uh, which, is, <laughs> which are male leggings and supposedly they were going back into fashion obviously it was a it was a complete fad, but anyway, so I had to go around wearing those. But then sometimes you're doing very serious things, like um, going to—I don't remember—going to Poland and doing a piece about middle-class life in Poland because we were doing a series about uh, trying to compare life in different parts of Europe. Um, and then there was that piece in Thailand where I went out and uh, spent. Uh, well, we'll put it in the notes so that. The okay. can explore it. Yeah. Right. Well, they'll be able to see this this time I spent a week at the full moon party on Koh Phangan Island in in Thailand and uh, watching, you know, people dance and and, and 
get drunk and piss into the sea. So it was incredibly varied, and 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 I was given all this amazing responsibility, even within days or weeks. I remember after, I think it was after my first week, Emily Wilson, who was one of the editors of G Two at that time, just came by my desk and said, "Fancy going to Thailand?" And so it, it was just a, it was a, an extraordinary opportunity to have at such a young age, and uh, the. I basically finished exams one day and started at the Guardian the next, and um, just have been pinching myself ever since. And we always try on the show to ask that you know to ask the tougher questions here, and, and obviously there's a big conversation going on about diversity and things at the moment. Um, you were at school at Eton. Uh, what do you feel that that background, um, and in general, what was it like being very young, being in that environment? Um, you know that that kind of piece. Was there, did you get was there resentment or? Um, well, I, th- I mean, the first thing to say is that, is that it's a huge problem that someone like me uh, has so much more access to these kinds of jobs than people from other kinds of backgrounds. Um, and it's something I wrestle with basically every day. And to be honest, I feel guilty about it. And uh, the only f- way I feel you can justify your position in journalism if you have the privilege that I have had is to just work really hard and try and do the best stories and um, the most worthwhile journalism um, that you can um, and beyond that I th- you know I can't you can't you can't just there has to be more positive action um, I do believe that um, we we can't we can't just have this system where there are fewer and fewer um, paid internships. There are fewer and fewer grad schemes that give people from all different backgrounds the advantage of working in London if they don't have parents who live. Were well, the Guardian paying interns at that time? They were paying me, um, but not all people on work experience at the Guardian were getting paid. Uh, although they did, they do have various different schemes. Um, but in the, all in all, it's not good enough for any paper. Um, and the result is you have more people from my background than, than there should be. Um, but then in answer to your question, was was I was that an issue? Uh, I guess I mean, it's not something I felt proud about because you, I knew it was I knew it was an issue. You know, it's, it's if journalism is a public good. It's a public good because it reflects what's going on in the outside world, and um, it can only really reflect properly what's going on in the world if you have a range of people who are able to tap into lots of different walks of life. And uh, if you if you don't have those that range of people, then you're then you're not doing what journalism's out to do. It's or should be out to do. From what you're saying, it sounds like um, you really landed on your feet and and fell into this um role in in some ways at um g2 and as you say you were, you were pinching yourself and you had this other job lined up when you were there i mean given the the vast array of things that you were writing about were you um hustling um for work or were, was a lot of different things being thrown at you and, and given to you or did you find the experience of starting at a newspaper um you know, in order to get ahead, did you find yourself having to really kind of hustle for for pieces to write? Um, well, if you, I mean, if you're one of one of their contract writers, as I was, then you're getting stuff thrown at you. So the the difficulty is to try and 
try and focus on stuff that you feel is worthwhile mm. um, rather than j- just sort of everything and anything. And so I was at that time I was sort of trying to move on to, uh, I guess, more political stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I pitched and, and began to write a column about um, alternative communities. This was around the time of Occupy and people were starting to think harder about, um, I guess, uh, capitalism and other other forms of um, political and economic models and I was interested in that too and so I think if you go back and look at uh, some of my longer pieces from that time mm. the ones that I was sort of more passionate about um, I think those interests are kind of reflected but yeah. but yeah there's a, it's a, I mean any, I think any journalist finds this who, who is attached to a specific outlet it's a battle between what you want to do and what your editors want you to do. Mm-hmm. By the time you've been at the Guardian um, three years or three years after you arrived, you sort of had this um, new role as the Egypt correspondent, which you held for a couple of years from 2013 to 2015. Is that correct? Um, could you explain um, a little bit about the kind of the dynamic uh, of working as a correspondent for um, a newspaper? So how that works, what the environment's like you know what's the difference between stringers and bureau chiefs and, and how does it work in practice so is a whole gamut um right at the top i think of the foreign correspondent perspective would be someone who's bureau chief for the new york times or a big american newspaper or um yeah mainly the american newspapers uh and they would be people who are definitely on staff they probably have uh, a junior correspondent with them um, uh, a local uh, Egyptian journalist for example who might translate might um, uh, do a summary of the news every day um, they might have a, an office they would have an office um, potentially a driver a whole load of resources that uh, most other foreign correspondents don't have um, then you might have Someone like me is a correspondent for The Guardian, as I was then. Um, and uh, I was initially on a, uh, on a freelance contract. So I was getting a regular um, salary, which took, takes the pressure off. You know, you don't have to be hustling to pitch left, right and centre to all sorts of publications. Um, but you don't have the resources that other people do and... Um, you know, I didn't speak Arabic when I arrived, so I had to try and carve out a budget from the Guardian to pay for a translator and so on and so on. Um, and then you have below that, maybe in, in the uh, security hierarchy, um, are, are people that are just entirely freelance, mm. um, don't have anyone that can dig them out of trouble if, if they get into uh, scrapes with the police or whatever. Um, they cannot. They, they don't know where the next paycheck is is coming from, and it's it's it can be quite a, a, a insecure existence, quite a fragile mm-hmm. existence. And then, of course, you have um, uh, so called fixers who are generally um, local nationals who are sometimes amazingly experienced journalists in their own right. Sometimes they're just people that um, uh, speak. English, uh, know a few people and um, uh, and have discovered that you can make business out of that by connecting journalists who fly in for a few days to local politicians or... And, and for yourself it was 
quite a pivot point from the kind of work you were doing beforehand as a feature writer in G2 to go to Egypt. Was that something you, you wanted to push for or how, how did it come about? That um, I wanted to kind of expand my skill set. And so I started applying for different reporting jobs off the features desk and I applied to be the Rome correspondent actually um, because that was a job that was available at that time and they said we don't think you're quite right for this but have you thought about Egypt um, which when I've told that story before people think it's like a slight non-secretary uh, which probably it is anyway that's how I ended up in Egypt um, it, it was not a part of the world I knew well but it was a part of the world that uh, I strove to get to know and you've talked a little bit about the, the dynamics, the sort of general dynamic of, of um, the foreign correspondent milieu um, and, and how that works. Could you now talk a little bit about the mechanics of your specific job there? So how do you go about um, the business of writing in a country that you just arrived in and, as you say, didn't realise you were going to be going to until you know um, just before you arrived? and you didn't speak the language. How does it work? How do you find stories? Um, how does the business of translators work and all the rest of it? Well, maybe part of the answer is what I wanted just to add to the end of the last part of the discussion, which is that um, these guys we call fixers, but in fact, you know, journalists uh, in most cases don't get enough credit. And mm. I think that's something that we as foreign correspondents have to um, face up to and, and work out how we, how we change that. Um, because it links into your mm. next question, which is that, you know, what do you do if you're a visiting correspondent, you don't have experience in the region or linguistic skills or, mm. or cultural understanding and suddenly you're thrown into it? Um, and one part of that uh, is, of course, you work with a, a local fixer, local mm-hmm. journalist, um, who helps you helps you at the start, you know, provides phone numbers, int- introduces people mm. and translates interviews. Um, I don't want to, uh, as as uh, dependent as I was, particularly on um, several people at the time, particularly a chap called Manu, whose, mm-hmm. name, whose surname we don't um, publish for safety reasons, but he he was a, he was a rock at that time. Uh, another man called Muafak Safadi. Um, they were phenomenal people who I wouldn't have been able to do the work I was doing uh, without. Um, I don't want to underestimate, though, my mm. own effort uh, as, as much as you are dependent on other people. Um, I was you have to hard. have a nose for a story. You have to have a nose for a story. You're constantly meeting people, reading, mm-hmm. and um, you know, just like in any, uh, any field, um, in a, 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 any, any field of journalism, you, know, you, you start off from a, a low base and you just... Mm-hmm talk to people, you read, you have a bit of immunity, maybe you make a few mistakes, um, but gradually over the course of weeks, months and years, you develop an understanding, uh, your language skills get better, your mm-hmm. cultural understanding gets better, and um, uh, I think it's important not to underestimate the, the effort that mm-hmm. certainly resident foreign correspondents put in as well. Um, and you were there at a time of, you know, a lot was going on politically in Egypt at that time. How did the mix work between the kind of daily stuff and um, some of these bigger investigatory, in, investigative pieces you were doing? We were looking particularly at the, the story about the, the uh, men who were There's gassed. Seven prisons. Yeah, who were gassed. Yeah. How did your kind of rhythm work between those enterprise type pieces and the, the kind of daily file? Um, we just ended up working really hard because you, you're doing, maybe you're doing 
in busy times, three, four, five, six news stories a week, uh, particularly for The Guardian, which, which really had an appetite for uh, news stories. Um, but then you're also trying to squeeze in these long-term investigative projects, which might take you out of town, out of Cairo, to some village mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere, as that particular story did. I mean, uh, just to give people some context, uh, 37 or 38 people have been gassed to death in the back of a police truck um, waiting to enter a prison. Um, and no one had had a proper explanation for why that atrocity happened. Um, and there'd also been, not just an explanation, but there were also lies about it. Um, there'd been a cover-up, yeah. Mm. Uh, so um, Manu and I tried to track down the few people that were in that truck that survived. Um, they'd spent some time in prison and then sort of had got released mm. um, slowly and in, in uh, unpublicised ways over the next few months. And then there were also policemen who were around the truck who... We also got to, um, and yes, to do those interviews, you're, you're having to take one or two days out of Cairo to mm-hmm. go to some village in the middle of nowhere to try and persuade them to talk to you. And, and that is, that's hard to fit in with the daily news grind, the quick turnaround that you have to might maybe do in three or four days and you need to be at your laptop with a good internet connection mm-hmm. and, a, and a phone. Obviously, the um, different newspapers will have different expectations of their foreign correspondents. But um, what was the expectation? Did you have sort of a, a monthly quota of pieces or a weekly quota of pieces? Um, or were you getting sort of asked by um, people in the UK um, to write certain stories that they thought were relevant? Um, I can't actually remember what the precise deal with The Guardian was. Like I said, I, just, I was put on staff. Like I went there as a contractor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was put on staff a few months later after the coup. Um, and things got heavy, and I guess they they thought I'd done a, an okay job. Um, uh, but I think even when I was a contractor, the expectation was you write as much as there is to write. I think mm-hmm. some people might have a, a, a word count they have to hit, but for me it was just you write as much as you have to write. And I'd, I remember just not really taking a day off for mm. several months because it was a crazy time. When I arrived, it was still... I guess you could call it a revolutionary period. Then came um, the, the second regime change. Morsi mm. was forced out. Uh, with a colleague, I was the last journalist to interview President Morsi before he was ousted by the army. And then there was his removal, and then there was all these massacres all that summer, um, culminating in 800 people being shot dead uh, in the middle of August. Um, what was your relationship with the various... Well, Government's maybe the wrong word, but the different factions. And did you feel pressure during on you during that time? Um, yeah, hugely. I mean, n- neither government liked what I was doing. I, I basically had the opinion that if you are a foreign correspondent who doesn't have much cultural knowledge or insight to, to offer your readers, that, um, what you can do that maybe it's a bit harder if you're a local correspondent, just for safety reasons, is to do big, hard-hitting investigations. Mm-hmm. So that's basically what I saw. It's like my role to investigate stuff that that were le- slightly less likely to land me in trouble than maybe an Egyptian journalist, although Egyptian journalists, Egyptian journalists do, didn't do fantastic investigations. Um, so I remember I did an investigation into army abuses that made the Muslim Brotherhood government, which is the government mm-hmm. when I first arrived, um, 
they then hate me and they stopped allowing me to come to their press conferences. And then when they got ousted, uh, I just kept going along that vein. But the government, the new government was uh, a different government and they also had a huge problem with me. So um, I don't think either side particularly liked what I was doing. Um, but it was quite it was quite a difficult time because, uh, I mean, it was nothing like what it is for uh, a local journalist, but I was getting followed. Mm. Your phones were obviously tapped. Um, they would do like news segments about me on TV uh, that, that said this person is a terrorist. Mm. Um, there were editorials about me in the local papers, uh, as they did to other foreign correspondents as well. But certainly, I was under quite a lot of pressure, and um, it was a, it was difficult. And you know, if you're in if you're in um, the street reporting, uh, you can get picked up by police, and I was maybe half a dozen times, and then you're questioned and. Uh, most of the time you get out and it's, mm. it's, it's not the end of the world, unlike uh, what it would be if you were an Egyptian. But there is that constant pressure and that constant feeling of knowing that the stuff you write is going to get you into some kind of trouble. We spent far, far too long on this um, anyway, but we're meant to move on. But I've just got a question because it's so fascinating. Um, do you think, given that you say that what you can offer people in this context are these sort of big investigative pieces um and and that's what you can add but presumably um bridge burning is therefore just sort of a professional hazard of um of a journalist sort of working those kind of fairly volatile beats because if you're doing these big investigative pieces you're going to be annoying people and that means that you are lessening your access um to groups once you've presumably done one of these pieces Yes, and so that's, and I guess that's what I mean when I think that's the main thing that a foreign, foreign correspondent mm. has to offer, uh, because you know you, maybe you're there for three, four years, you've got a short amount of time, uh, you don't have to live there all your life, your family are not embedded in the local society, therefore, the danger of, the danger that might hit you if if you go after certain subjects is not as profound as it might for someone who has a local passport. Um, and so that is the, I feel that's the main, that's the, the main value added that you, that, that you can add. And can we move to the, the migration job that you did? How did mm-hmm. that come about? It was a newly created position, sorry. Yes, so as the political situation in Egypt started to, to uh, ebb, or the, the die seemed to have been cast, it was back to being a, a more dictatorial environment. I became more and more interested in other narratives, like um, what was happening to refugees. So there was this, uh, 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 an enlarged Syrian refugee population, not as big as there is in Turkey or Lebanon or Jordan, but nevertheless uh, a few hundred thousand at that time. And I was sort of intrigued as to how they were doing and also what they were going to do in the future, which was to go to Europe. And I was noticing that more and more the people I was interviewing were saying, yeah, next year we're going to go to Europe. Um, and I got it, it, when I say go to Europe, I mean smuggled over the Mediterranean to Italy at that point, which was the main uh, target. So that became a, a passion of mine. In 2014, I started meeting smugglers, trying to understand the smuggling networks. And then um, I actually got a grant to research migration independently of the Guardian and 
independently of that, my boss, Jamie Wilson, the, the international editor of The Guardian, um, also felt there was, a, there was something going on in terms of migration and that it might be good to have someone like me um, focusing on it. And since I already had shown interest in it and had this grant, he put two and two, 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 and two together and asked me to, to cover migration in 2015. And it was great timing because um, that was the year, unbeknownst to us, that would sort of change mm. European history in a way. You had a million people land on European shores, mainly Greece, but also Italy. Um, and um, it was an astonishing year for me. I, I think I went to, by the end of it, probably around 20, 25 countries. I was constantly on the move. There was one week when I think I crossed nine borders or ten borders in the time that a thousand people had drowned trying to cross one. This was in April and I'd gone to Turkey to get a visa to go to Libya and then I'd gone to Jordan to catch a flight to um, to, to Libya itself. And then when I was in Libya, a thousand people had drowned in two different uh, accidents at sea and... Meanwhile, I was going to Tunisia and then Malta and then Italy and then uh, France and Germany and Sweden. Can uh, we can we talk specifically about the big multimedia piece? That, yeah, um, it's called The Journey and it follows um, Hashem Asuki, is that how you say his name? Um, and uh, you sort of pointed out in, in the email that you sent us that since this piece was written, lots more like it have come out. But at the time, it was something a bit different. Can you talk about how that piece came about and about the mechanics of, of writing that piece and creating that piece. So it, it, when, when I got this migration job, I wanted to do the most impactful stuff and I felt the most impactful stuff uh, is, is work that really brings out the, the humanity of, of the people on the move. Um, in hindsight, I don't know if it really worked because I think it appealed to a certain kind of reader and not to another kind of reader. But um, but one of the main ways I thought that you could really show someone's humanity was to chronicle one person's journey um, in painstaking detail to understand like why they couldn't, uh, why they had to leave Syria in the first place, then why they couldn't stay in the Middle East in these countries of transit like Turkey, Jordan, Egypt, why that was necessary then what that horrible journey across the sea is like, and then what it's like to arrive in Europe. Um, and uh, so I had got to know Hashem over the winter, uh, who was one of the refugees I was sort of checking in with just as part of my regular reporting, trying to see what was going on. And um, he'd actually got to know him the previous year because he'd, he'd narrowly avoided getting drowned in another shipwreck, um, uh, but he'd been arrested just as, just before he managed to get on the boat um, by by the coast guards. So at that point, his ambition was to travel with his his whole his, family. His whole family, exactly. Um, and then, to my surprise, the next spring, he said he still wanted to travel, even though he'd nearly drowned the previous year, because the situation in Egypt was so desperate for Syrians. Um, and I asked if I could, in some way, follow him. I debated whether to go on the boat with him. Uh, I even bought a wetsuit and various other uh, paraphernalia preparing to go on that journey. In the end, I didn't. But I went and I met him in Italy as soon as he landed in Italy. Yeah, because um, I was interested reading it. What what elements of the reporting were retrospective and what were, were you there with him? And were there, you know, when you were talking to your editors about this, were there kind of 
questions of how you're going to source it, all sorts of ethical questions about, you know, accompanying people. How did you negotiate that piece? And well, I think there are two ethical, main ethical questions. One is, is it right to... I mean, uh, we asked them to take photos on the boat and we asked them to take notes on the boat so that we had some kind of uh, contemporaneous record as well as um, retrospective interviews that, that I conducted mm. once he landed in Italy. Um, you know, is it right to ask someone uh, who's going to put themselves through a life or death situation um, to do something like that for you? Uh, and the second ethical question is, uh, if you as a journalist are accompanying a refugee through Europe, to what extent are you participating in that journey and to what extent are you observing? Um, and then the second part of your question was about sort of the professional... Yeah, aspect. I mean, did you... Because the way it's written, it's all in the historic present, right? Mm. The, with the piece, um, one of my favourite tenses. Um, but, and we'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, but it's not sort of stated where you're present and where you're not, but there's a separate piece of kind of how this was made piece, right, that goes with it. Exactly. Um, so I wasn't present with him on the boat, and uh, we were relying on the videos that he made, the photos that he took, the diary that he kept, which is uh, quite a detailed diary, um, and the interviews that I did with him afterwards. Uh and with a few other people that were with him on the boat to try and second source at least some of uh, what he'd said. Um, so for some people, uh, that is, they, they, I mean, I guess the, the question is, is that, is that enough? Is that enough um, proof of what happened? Um, and then... The second bit about where you're actually, you know, you're with him whether that's influencing the situation. With the second part, the, are you influencing the situation? You know, if you if a, if a border guard comes along and and uh, sees you with, uh, sees you the journalist in your smart clothes with, um, uh, someone who otherwise might look a bit more conspicuous, you know, are you influencing the journey? I think that's a valid question. But as it happened, I don't think it um, it was really a concern. Just the way things panned out. I mean. I don't want to spoil too much of what happens to him, but certainly the the riskier bits of his journey were ones where um, I I could see what was going on, but for various reasons I was actually several roads away, uh, and so I didn't feel like my presence influenced his journey or not. Um, there was one time in a in a particular place where he didn't have the right currency, and it was late at night and he couldn't change. The, Currencies in order to pay for a train ticket, and so I had this awful half an hour where we were traipsing around in the cold, where he was trying to find um, a someone to change his money, so he could buy a ticket to go to the next destination. And I was thinking, you know, I could just buy it from on my credit card. Uh, as it happens, they didn't. And um, but I don't know what would have happened if uh, you know this situation had gone on for several more hours. Would I have would I prioritise my journalistic self above my human self for that long? Fortunately, I didn't have to make that choice. Um, but then, then I think you also, in these cases, you know, we we elevate journ- the journalistic, quote unquote, ethics above human ethics. Mm. Um, and I think it's an open question about whether that's actually the right thing to do on a human level. I have a question that sort of touches on that. Um, I mean, what was in it for him? Um, why did he ag- agree to? presumably mark himself out on the boat by 
taking notes and you know taking pictures um why did he agree to be the the subject of this piece he's quite um he's a guy who reads he doesn't speak much english at all but he he reads foreign news or reads news about the world he's 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 quite urbane um he 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 was aware of how refugees and how the Syrian situation was perceived, and I think he felt. I mean, he's, he actually writes a little addendum to my book, which I asked him to about why he did it. And, and so one of the things he says is he he felt it was necessary to to, to tell the West uh, and to humanise the situation uh, that he was going through to the West. Um, and so he he saw like journalistic value in what I wanted to do. And the second thing was that. He said, you know, for years under Bashar al-Assad in Syria, we didn't have the right to say anything, we didn't have the right to speak out, and this was a chance for me to speak speak um, through uh, through this, this story we did in The Guardian. Can we talk, you mentioned your, your book in passing there, can we talk more generally about your book writing and how that's fitted in parallel with your, your mm-hmm. newspaper work over the period of your career? Uh, so I've written two books so far, hopefully not the last two. Um, one was a book about Denmark, about contemporary Danish society and culture. Um, so not quite a travelogue, not quite a I mean, not a travel guide either. Um, it, it's basically a series. I, I, I best describe it as a series of G two features about different aspects of Danish society. I'm just going to give the, the title. It's, it's How to Be Danish, and it was published in 2012. <laughs> Thank you. Like, like short books, go buy it now. Uh, um, and and. Um, that came about because I was talking to a, a, a small and uh, upcoming publisher called Short Books, and they wanted um, uh, they were interested in me writing a book because they, they liked my writing in the Guardian, and we were sort of throwing ideas around. I said I was interested in Denmark, or that I was watching a lot of Danish TV shows that were on British television at that time, and they said, "Well, why don't you write a book about contemporary Denmark, seeing as it's kind of a." A cool thing in in parts of uh, British um, society at the moment, or, or you know, parts of North London maybe. Um, and uh, so I went to Denmark for a month or so. I did about a hundred interviews and and turned those into um, a series of chapters about Danish food, Danish TV, Danish design, uh, how then Denmark is sort of trying to. Um, absorbed lots of immigrants um, and that was kind of separate to my professional, my, my day job at The Guardian and the migration book which is called The New Odyssey I thought it's my favour um, uh, that uh, was a very different process it came out of my reporting for The Guardian and bits of reporting that uh, I was sort of doing on the side but it was definitely something that I couldn't have done without uh, being at The Guardian um, and so it was a, that, that was a sort of different process. But both books um, I wrote in about a month. The Danish book I wrote in, in a month. I had three months off, uh, maybe two months off. I did a reporting in, a, in one month and I did the writing in one month. Um, I just treated it as, as a really intense period mm-hmm. of reporting as I would for The Guardian. Then the, the book about migration, um, I think I wrote it in five weeks mm-hmm. um, parts of it were, were already basically there because I'd written versions of, of them for The Guardian including the story about Hashim but others were written from scratch uh, so it wasn't like I was writing 90,000 words in five weeks um, 
but uh, maybe. Did you find that a fulfilling way to work? Or, you know, if you're going to do books again in the future, would you want to be working perhaps a slightly different rhythm? Sure, I love that luxury, but but also um, I'm used to working really intensely. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I love being a a journalist on a day-to-day basis and I'm not yet ready to, uh, by any means, to be in a sort of phase of my life where I'm just writing a book for a year or uh, I'm doing a project for three or four years. Um, you know, I like working as a reporter, doing shorter pieces, and so if that is if if writing a book in a really intense and short period of time is uh, the only way to sort of balance those those two desires, then then so be it for the time being. Well, your your love of um, journalism is a is a good place to end on because we've we're now going to move to your um, your next career move. Uh, uh, to the New York Times, which was at the beginning of last year, uh, um, 2017. Yeah. January 2017. And um, what prompted um, the move? Um, well, my opposite number in Cairo, the New York Times bureau chief, asked me if I'd be interested in joining mm-hmm. the Times, and I said yes, obviously, because it's probably the best newspaper in the world. Um, and then there was a lot of interviews, and eventually to my slight surprise they offered me a job um, and what was that first job? it was acting Turkey bureau chief for eight months or so and then I moved here to London to have a kind of roving role based here in London but mostly focusing on different parts of Europe so I spent a month in Catalonia covering the Catalan crisis I'm currently doing a, a short series about Viktor Orban um, Hungary's Prime Minister I'm doing some migration work in Sudan mm-hmm. next month as well. So it's sort of taken me to lots of different places. Um, and my official title is Enterprise Reporter. Enterprise being the American sort of term for anything that takes a bit of time or just isn't day-to-day news. So it could be investigations or it could be like a piece of narrative mm-hmm. uh, writing. Um, and the reason why I joined was because while I love The Guardian and uh, as you can probably tell, I'm incredibly indebted to them and grateful to them. I felt you have to sort of test yourself in different mm-hmm. environments, and in particular at, at a newspaper like the New York Times, which just has better reputation than anyone else, more resources than anyone else, more editors than anyone else, more space in their newspaper and website than anyone else. And um, So you, it sounds like you find it a very different experience working for them. Maybe what are the kind of principal differences in, in, you know, in your day-to-day I don't know if it's, I mean, I don't know if it's different in the sort of fundamental sense. It's, it, everything is journalism, and journalism is more or less the same kind of process anywhere. But uh, the wonderful thing about the Times is uh, they, they just have more editors to, mm-hmm. um, to work on your stories, therefore your editors have more time both to read your stories and to think about them, but also to think about what's going on in the world. How did, you, had you, did you find American editing very different to the way you edited The Guardian? Um, the editing the kind is excellent and uh, um, no no problems there but I think there are just more editors at the New York Times and there's more time to edit uh, the longer pieces mm-hmm. and um, for that reason it's, it's just a, a bit more intensive and it makes you as a reporter I think work a bit harder and um, uh, and as a writer, you iron out 
some of the maybe looser bits of writing um, more often than not. Uh, I don't really want to get into sort of a, a comparison because mm. it's 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 not fair or right. But I think just the, the thing that I've been most happy with at the, at the times is just that is that level of intensity that they have because they have more resources. And again, um, we always try and ask about money on the podcast. And we, we've spoken to other American editors, something, you know, you've mentioned it yourself as well, the level of resourcing being different. Um, put bluntly, do, do the Americans pay you a lot more than the British? Um, not hugely, but yes. Mm. It's, it's, I mean, the, 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 the gap when it came down to it was, was not massive, but, but yes, it's more. But that wasn't really, I mean, if, 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 if the... Uh, Hint of your question is, is that the hint is simply that we always ask this right, yeah. okay. in every podcast, so it's nothing. It's nothing particular to your situation, but we feel that you know it's in many ways the elephant in the room in conversations about books and writing and stuff, and it's always something that. Well, we I think the American about. babies pay more than, than, than their British counterparts, but um, but when I mentioned resources, it was more just everything else that comes mm. with resources. It was the, the fact that fact checkers you, you can get on a you, you don't have to worry about whether this this. Uh, extra day in a place to do several more interviews is going to bankrupt the paper. Mm-hmm. Working um, first in Turkey and now in London for an American newspaper, I mean, obviously there's a, there's a bureau here, but do you find it difficult from a career point of view to be away from the um, sort of political centre of um, the company that you're working for? No, because um, London is a thriving part of the New York Times mm. uh, um, engine um, you know we, we cover Europe and, and this the, these time zones closest to London and, and that's a really important part of what's going on uh, I didn't grow up in America so I'm not sort of mm. emotionally tied um, to the place and London's my home so it's it's great to be here and you've you've achieved an enormous amount in your career thus far uh, some kind of Animal in the background. Maybe some kind of um, fox. But, uh, but going going forward, where do your interests, your ambitions lie? I mean, you you've you've done an enormous amount of writing, um, but you're also you know you're you're within these big institutions. I suppose you know. Are you interested in editing a newspaper, or you, where do you where do you see yourself going? Or, or maybe a better way to phrase it is, you know, what is your attitude towards these institutions you worked in? Do you do you want to head them, or do you want to kind of use them as vehicles to do the? I don't really know, to be honest. I have lots of different emotions and and um, and uh, feelings depending on the the minute of the day. Um, at the moment, I just really want to to become a better reporter. I feel mm. like I have a lot more to learn. Um, there's a lot more to find out about in the world, and um, I want to just keep on doing stories that I'm really proud of. I think the the biggest thing is is at the moment I'm. Uh, young I'm uh, I don't have a family I can kind of choose things based basically on what I want to do I think the, the, the biggest change in my life and my career was obviously when I moved to a different phase of my personal and emotional life and, and I decided I do want to settle down and then, then I think you have to start asking like do you want to become an editor do you want to do this kind of reporting do you want to be in this place or that place um, so the answer is I, I, I'm actually just really happy at the moment doing what, doing what I'm doing so uh, who knows what I'll be doing in the future but I love reporting and I think that's what I want to do for this phase of my life 
And you've been at the um, New York Times, you know, for, for a year. Um, and it's been kind of an odd one um, for journalism as a whole. On the one hand, we're still kind of dealing with the the um, backwash of, of panic about advertising and all the rest of it. And on the other hand, um, newspapers like the New York Times have, have really profited from the desi- from people's desire to get to the truth. Is that something that you think about? And um, you know, what what's the feeling at the the New York Times um, about what's going on um, in journalism and the conversations about journalism that are specifically happening at the moment? Um, well, speaking personally, I feel like I'm part of an institution is is going uh, all guns blazing towards the, the truth. I mean, the, every other day there seems to be an amazing story out of Washington by my colleagues there. Um, it feels like as testing as, as a time... This is for the world. It's a great time for journalism, but in particular, New York Times journalism. So um, it, it, it feels like quite an upbeat time. I mean, in any part of journalism, that being said, everyone's sort of wondering about how, how do you move towards the future? What, is the, what are the new structures of, of, of the future? And um, as anyone that reads so the media press knows, all newspapers and news websites, including the New York Times, are, are restructuring and um, but in journalistic terms, uh, it's really exciting. They're, they're expanding the number of reporters. Uh, I've been able to join the paper. It, it feels like a, a really great moment to just get out there and do some good stories. And I hope I can be a part of that. Well, listen, thanks so much, Patrick, for speaking so openly um, and so candidly on such a range of issues. And we wish you all the very best in the future. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed that. Now, a brief update from our lives, Simon. Uh, not a huge amount of change. Um, more work on the book, but uh, the the end approaches ever, ever nearer day by day. Um, and I've also been assigned to write a big thing uh, about Belgium uh, in the run-up to the World Cup. But that's, um, that's over the event horizon after the book is finished. Cassia, what about you? I've handed in my first draft of the book, which I'm... Whoop, whoop so pleased about uh, and I'm waiting to get the edits back but we'll worry about those later um, but no since then I've been um, just trying to relax and 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 stop thinking about writing and <laughs> haven't been into the shed since <laughs> it's all, all a bit shell-shocked always Absolutely. take notes towers <laughs> as ever uh, we are always take notes hosted by me Cassie Sinclair and me Simon Aikham our producers are Olivia Crellin, Ed Kiernan and Liz Davies. Our music is by Jess Danheiser. Our social media is handled by Zara Hankier and our graphic design is by James Edgar. We're of course on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Just search Always Take Notes. Our Twitter handle is at Take Notes Always and our website is alwaystakenotes.com. And if you've enjoyed the show, please do leave a review on iTunes. It really helps. Thank you very much.